We're in the second Sunday of Advent. And we are continuing on in a sermon series called Taking Advantage or Sharing It, an um, an alternative approach to power. And we're looking at the letter to the Philippians by the Apostle Paul. And I'll eventually wind around to Paul. But before that, I want to spend quite a bit of time actually talking about this season of Advent that we're in. So last Thursday night, Rachel and I went with some friends to go see the annual Ebert and Friends holiday concert. And that takes place every year at the Ark. For the last 10 years, a local band called the Ragbirds um, have pulled together some of the best local musicians from all around the Ann Arbor, uh, Ipsy, Washtenaw County area for a big joint Christmas concert. And a few of the people who are part of our church are performers in that. And as we listened to some of the various songs that they were singing, I started to be just struck by this sense of hopeful longing that is expressed in so many Christmas carols. And I remember noticing it first when there was a line from the song, I heard the bells on Christmas day um, was quoted, right? Like the musician didn't actually sing that song in full, but the lines, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, was quoted and it was quoted in another context. But I just remember thinking, yeah, it kind of feels like that right now. There is no peace on earth. You know, my, my generation in America, I'm Gen X, post-Vietnam, we've been relatively sheltered from the effects of war unless we're part of military families. And I was thinking like, Pete, you served in Vietnam, didn't you? No? Oh, I thought you did. Did anybody serve? We don't actually have, see, even in this congregation, we don't have anybody who has served in war. I'm sorry, I don't know why I thought you had. Um, And I thought, you know, the generation before me at least kind of knows that feeling of understanding what it means to have friends who were, were taken off to war and to have to sacrifice. And even though our country's been at this sort of low-level war for the last 15 years, it hasn't really affected the civilian population that significantly, right? So people who are my age, and I'm almost 40, don't know what it means to suffer like that. I don't know people who have died. And at Thanksgiving, Rachel and I, we spent a night at my grandmother's house. Um, My grandma is 94 and still lives on her own and still drives. And so we stayed at her house, and she was just telling us all of these old stories from the 1920s and 30s and 40s, because she grew up in Depression era, um, the Dust Bowl, on a farm in Oklahoma. And she was just talking to us about how difficult life was during the Depression and then during World War II and how much it just affected everyone. And I think we're not there, certainly. And yet, it's like the sound of the war drums can be sort of starting to be heard in the distance. And there seems to be something in our collective herding instinct that has many of our antenna up. And I want to say for those of you who are newer, maybe you're visiting for our serendipity doodah moms, our moms of LGBTQ um, children who join us online. There's about 200 of them in that group. Um, I think it's worth saying again that at this church, we don't usually preach politics per se. And I don't really care how people vote. I don't care how you affiliate. You can probably guess which way I lean, but I voted three different parties in my adult life. And I really do respect like run-of-the-mill conservatism, but we are not in a run-of-the-mill time. And we'll continue to say Trump is different. And that his Muslim ban, which is in full effect now, is dehumanizing. And his brazen support for a man who has been banned from both his local mall and his local YMCA for predatory behavior is really just beyond my reach. That Roy Moore could have the President of the United States support, advocate, and protect him to me is just beyond the pale. And I think Democrats rightly called for Al Franken to resign. And there's a reckoning that's starting to happen with women and with some men 
who have been taken advantage of by those who are in power. And those people are starting to be heard and to be believed. And yet our president, himself accused by multiple women of sexual assault, harassment, and whose ex-wife stated in court records that he raped her, he brashly supports Roy Moore and dismisses the women who were girls, I mean teenagers, and talks about them as liars. And this is ugly, and this is not normal. And some think tanks are putting our chances of a ground war in North Korea at 50%, and then Trump goes and just irresponsibly names Jerusalem as Israel's capital against all advice, without any sort of understanding of what's going on in the region. And the complexities of that situation, I, I lived in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, for a few months, and that's the Palestinian side. Spent some time in the West Bank, and Palestinians suffer. They really do suffer under what President, um, former President Carter calls a system of apartheid. And yet on the other side, I also understand the Israelis have a need to feel secure that is deep-seated. And it's complicated. If ever there were a complicated situation, but just brashly brushing aside our neutrality in regards to Jerusalem means that people will die and people are already dying. Flippant behavior. And then to top the week off, we seem poised to pass a tax bill that by all accounts, including Republican calculations, is going to devastate the poor and it's going to increase our debt. That's where my fiscal conservatism comes in. Another trillion dollars to the debt. Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris are calling on churches to revive Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1968 poverty campaign so that we can advocate for those struggling to make ends meet. I signed up to receive the updates. We'll see where that leads. Yeah, but the gap between rich and poor continues to widen in a nation that already has the largest gap between rich and poor that there ever has been. And people close to the president are waving red flags. They're telling us he's unstable. Maybe he has early symptoms of dementia, which I have some compassion for. My dad has dementia. And all the while, though, he's leaning into his fascist tendencies and he's establishing his own personal spy network around the world that's going to be independent of the FBI and the CIA along with Eric Prince, that Blackwater guy. And I just think in this time, the church cannot afford to lose its prophetic voice, right? The church cannot afford to lose its prophetic voice. And so there I was, I'm in this holiday concert, and all of a sudden the incredible Jess McCummins takes the stage. And if you've not heard her, oh my gosh, her voice is just beautiful and strong. And she's got this commanding stage presence and she gets up there and she starts singing, have a very Merry Christmas old song by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Have a very Merry Christmas. War is over. Martha nodding. The subtitles, War is over. And John Lennon and Yoko Ono, they wrote that song right smack in the middle of the Vietnam War, 1971. And the background echoes say, War is over if you want it. War is over now. And I leaned over to Rachel and I leaned over to Andrea and Adam who were sitting next to us and I just said, this, this feels like church. Because, I mean, Jess got up there and she was bringing down the house. And I thought if we were in church, people would be yelling amen. I, I got out, I've got this virtual lighter on my phone that I like to show off. You know, you can flip it up and like war is over if you want it. And I just thought, this is Advent. It's summed up in a song. It's that feeling that even in the middle of this, like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen in this crazy world? What's going to happen in my crazy family? What's going to happen in my crazy life, in my crazy job? In all of that, we can actively want and hope for and declare peace. In the middle of Vietnam, Lennon and Yoko Ono are singing, war is over if you want it. It was expressing active desire for peace. 
And that is Advent. It's practicing, actively desiring hope, peace, joy, and love in the middle of all of the darkness. And this is what we ritualize every single year in the global church so that it can become more natural for us to access hope when things are difficult. You know, for those of you who didn't grow up in a church or maybe you didn't grow up in a church that practiced some of the, the liturgical seasons and the different feasts of the Christian calendar, Advent is the, it's the four weeks that lead up to Christmas, right? So it's the four weeks that lead up to Jesus's birth every year. We light the four candles leading up to Christmas. And that word advent comes from the Latin word adventus. And it's often translated as arriving or coming, right? So it's leading up to the arriving or the coming of Jesus. It probably most accurately means presence. Like that idea of Emmanuel, God with us. So at Christmas, we celebrate God's arrival when he's born and laid in a manger. But in Advent, we practice anticipating that arrival. We practice anticipating the arrival of the Prince of Peace, and we practice anticipating God's arrival into all of the dark spaces of our lives and in our world. Because as Christians, we recognize that not all is right in the world, that evil is a reality, and that darkness thrives, and that we humans, every single one of us, is capable of terrible things. And yet at the same time, a poignant human quality that many of us share is a longing and a desire for justice and peace and love when they're feeling elusive or when they feel like they could just about slip away at any moment with the drop of one nuclear bomb or with one car accident. You know, before Mary became pregnant with Jesus, the world in which she lived was also rife with all these sorts of political tensions and it's likely that she felt powerless at times. She was young, she was probably a teenager, which is when some of the women in her culture would marry. She was female, she was Jewish in Roman-occupied territory. She lived up in the Galilee, which was a sort of a backwater territory. It was kind of like the boondocks, and it was armed with rebels that were skirmishing against the government. And there were lots of riots that took place in northern Israel when she grew up. In fact, the Romans came and they squashed a riot in her parents' um, time, during her parents' generation. That they said that like in one day, they crucified 2,000 people on the hills of the Galilee. So her family very likely knew people who had been killed by Roman soldiers. And like, who was she to carry the hope of the world? I think, well, she was exactly the right person because God wanted to communicate to us that he chooses the humble and the vulnerable in this world to carry the strength of the divine presence, right? The presence of unconditional love, which is the strongest force in the world. He says it's good for us to remember that humble vessels can be trusted to carry God's presence. And so Mary consented, and through the Holy Spirit, she became pregnant with Jesus, whatever through the Holy Spirit means. And after becoming pregnant, Mary quickly decided that she needed to go and visit her cousin, Elizabeth, who was also pregnant. And Elizabeth was living down in Judea, so it would take her a few days to walk to where Elizabeth lived. And so when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, we're told that the baby that was in her belly leapt. And the baby that, that Elizabeth was carrying is named John. We call him John the Baptist later, right? And then Mary's carrying Jesus. We're told that when Mary walks up, John sort of leapt, almost like John was recognizing the presence of God and Mary. And then at that moment, we're told Mary comes out with one of the most revolutionary songs that has ever sung, recorded in Luke chapter 1. Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble servant, our humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
for the mighty one has done great things for me, holy is his name. His mercy extends to all those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. This is where it gets good. He's scattered those who are proud with their inmost thoughts and he's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble and he's filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty and he's helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. And then I read that, I think of Mary, this teenage girl, like coming out with this prophetic song and I think, preach it, Mary. Right? She's saying God scatters the proud. God brings down rulers from their throne. God lifts up the humble. God fills the hungry. God's taken me, a nobody, and he said that my name's gonna be great for generations. And he's taken the rich and the powerful and sent them away. He said to those corporate robber barons who are increasing taxes and buying tax credits to increase their own wealth at the expense of the lower class that they will receive their just due. This is Mary. She's like one of those preachers on Capitol Hill this week, those preachers that were there like reading out verses from the Bible, talking about God's preferential treatment for the poor and getting arrested because they were standing up for God saying, I protect the poor and the powerless. And I wanna say to those of you in here who are like middle school, high school, I know some of the middle school boys are hanging out, I think in the, high, in the middle school room. Uh, you are not too young. Mary's 14, 15, 16, and she had the voice to stand up and say, no, God is the God of the powerless and the oppressed and God speaks truth into these situations. And you are not too young to do that. Mary practices hope when that hope that is literally within her is still unfulfilled, right? It's just, it's just hope, it's just an imagining. She's looking ahead and expressing this unbounded faith that God will one day make things right through what she carries in her because that's who God is. That's the God that we know and love and that's the God who knows and loves us. This is the God we've heard stories about. This is the God who hears the cries of the distressed and who will answer. And her song is the sound of the faith of the oppressed and the downtrodden. It's the sound of the faith of those who are prone to despair. Mary's voice captures the voice who have been sexually assaulted for those who are losing their health care. Mary's is the voice of those hoping for peace and justice in our world and it's a strong, powerful voice that she has found through her hope in God. You know, a few months back I was chatting with Rachel about some of the uncomfortable passages that are in what we often call the Old Testament. We should probably call the Hebrew Scriptures. Passages where like the Israelites record their military conquests. And you know, there's a story in the book of Joshua that talks about God asking his people to go and to massacre an entire people group, the Canaanites, essentially to commit genocide. We know from archeology span and we know from DNA tests that the genocide of the Canaanites couldn't have taken place. It's likely that there was probably a war between those groups, but it wasn't genocide because many people in Lebanon today are actually the descendants of the Canaanites, so the Canaanites live on. But my question to Rachel is, is like, why would you tell yourself this story? You know, like, why would, why would you record it that way? And Rachel pointed out something, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. I kind of told her before, I think I'm okay. She said, you know, Emily, oppressed people tell themselves stories of strength. Oppressed people tell themselves story of strength. Strong people tell themselves stories of weakness. And they tell themselves story of strength to keep hope alive. 
And as I've let that kind of ferment over the last few months, it's made sense to me. You know, when the book of Joshua was actually compiled and written down, it was hundreds of years after the events actually took place. You know, I think events like that can certainly have happened. You know, oral history is actually quite, um, quite accurate. But the way they compiled it and when they compiled it was when they were during or just after the Babylonian exile. So in other words, the Jewish people had been conquered, Jerusalem had been completely burned down, its walls and its temples had been destroyed and its people had been carried off to Babylon. And that's when these depleted people started to compile their history. And they most likely compiled it to help them to regain like a sense of cultural identity, to remind themselves of who they are and of who God is and how God has come through for them even when it seems like God's been abandoning them. And so in that space of utter weakness and vulnerability, they told themselves stories of strength and they emphasized stories that told about their dominance and their power and how they were once formidable and they could be again. And they told themselves those stories so as not to despair. And that thought was really helpful to me because we see stories of strength in oppressed groups in America today. Right? We see it in rap music. We see it in old spirituals. It's true that the church culture of many African-American churches emphasizes God's glory and God's power and God's strength and God's kingship. While in white churches, or mostly white churches, we tell stories of how God humbled us. You know, I think Ken spoke so beautifully last week about how so many of us who are white grow up telling stories about ourselves that emphasize how we picked ourselves up by our bootstraps and how we're self-made like to ignore some of those like lucky advantages that we've gained simply by being white in this country. But this lies in stark contrast to the stories of the weak, which can feel almost shocking in terms of like the brazen displays of power. And so when I look at Mary and her song, she's singing with the voice of the oppressed, right? As she anticipates God's presence, she's singing with that voice. And it's a deeply biblical voice that reflects the hope of the downtrodden. But then on the other hand, we've been talking about the Apostle Paul in this series. And the Apostle Paul is relatively privileged in his sphere of influence. He's male, he's a Roman citizen, which goes a long way. Uh, he was a highly trained Pharisee who studied under a very respected rabbi. He's a man who's a recognized leader among leaders in the early church. And in the letter to the Philippians, he's speaking as one who has power within his sphere and he's trying to show those who also have power how to embrace humility. And as he's writing, he's been hearing these rumors about how some believers in Jesus had been going around to different cities and starting to say that they were more righteous than some of the other Jesus followers because they ate kosher and they were circumcised. And if people wanted to be as holy as them, then they needed to do the same, right? So in other words, they were using their Jewish identity and they were holding it over non-Jews in the faith and claiming like a status. Now, Paul himself, he was circumcised. And he didn't seem to have any problem with Jews who believed in Jesus continuing in their Jewish identity, eating kosher, being circumcised, etc. In fact, that was probably encouraged. There was no problem, so long as they didn't think it made them somehow better than others. Right? So G Jewish followers of Jesus, they were to eat with Gentiles and treat them as equals. But these men that he had heard about weren't doing that, and Paul is mad. So starting in verse 4, in chapter 3, he says, Someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, I'm persecuting the, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Yes, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, I want to know Christ. Yeah, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death and so somehow attain the resurrection. And he says, not that I've already attained this. It's not like I've arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I strain toward what is ahead and I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Right, this is Paul just saying, you think you're great? I would beat every single one of you in that game. But here's the thing, there is nothing about any of that that makes me any better than anyone else. There is nothing that makes me more special before God. We are equal. Faith in Jesus is the great equalizer. And in fact, all those things that tempt me to think I'm special, I count those as loss. Right, he says, I consider them garbage. And the Greek word there that's translated as garbage is more properly human excrement. Paul is saying, I count my privilege as crap, as S-H-I-T. I say that because he is purposely using a vulgar term because I think he's trying to evoke shock and disgust. He's like, I am disgusted by the thought of lording advantage over other people. You know, in our last sermon series, we talked about humility. And it means, humility just means not thinking ourselves too highly of others, but also not thinking too lowly of ourselves. Thinking ourselves as equal with all of humanity. So for some people, they have to kind of learn the humble side. And for some people, they have to learn to start to own their worth as humans. And our identities are complicated, aren't they? We've got both of those things in us. In some ways, I'm oppressed. I'm a woman. I'm a gay woman. But in other ways, I have so many advantages. I'm white, and that goes a long way in this world. I'm American. I'm middle class. And when I think I don't make much money, I remember how even with our middle class income, when I looked it up yesterday on like the world calculator, we're in the top 1.5% of the world in terms of our income when it's adjusted for location and taxes. Like I'm not part of the 1% here in the United States, but I am part of the 1% essentially in the world. And I've lived among the poor and I've seen it. Like what we have is lavish in our, our little Cape Cod house in Ypsilanti. Right, so in some parts of my life, I sound like Mary because I'm working on that part of me that needs to know that my humanity is no less than anyone else's humanity. And I know that we have a lot of queer people here in our congregation and life is harder for us, just as it's harder for people of color in our culture and those who are differently abled and those suffering from mental illness. And sometimes we have to declare the strength of God when we're feeling fragile and vulnerable. And my faith compels me to exclaim God's coming justice for the oppressed, right? You will often hear a more prophetic sounding voice from me, probably because that's where I'm coming from. But there's other parts of my life where I need to count my privilege like it's S-H-I-T. You know, I think about like Senator Chuck Grassley this week. He said, poor people don't deserve tax breaks because they just go and spend their money on booze and women and movies. I mean, it's like, where do you even start? with a statement like that. It's so misguided. It's embedded in this notion that the rich are somehow more virtuous than the poor. 
You know, that man needs to count his monetary riches as crap and realize he is not better than those with any less money. He doesn't get like automatic virtue points because he can invest in the stock market. This is what Paul is talking about. And then Paul ends chapter three of Philippians by looking forward to God's presence, making all things right. Because look, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await our savior Jesus who will transform us, right? So just as Mary was looking forward to God's coming, so Paul believes also that God is going to come and make all things right. Eventually come Lord Jesus. So this Advent we practice waiting and sometimes we'll sound like Mary declaring God's coming justice and sometimes we're going to sound like Paul reminding ourselves that God trusts the humble with his presence say, may we have enough humility to recognize God when that divine presence is at work in the world. And I would say, if we don't practice hope now, we might find it harder to access if the gathering clouds do in fact turn into a storm. One of the markers of Christian faith is our ability to believe that hope will come, that peace will come, that joy will come, and that love will triumph no matter how dark things appear, that love is in fact the strongest force on earth. All right do something a little bit different. I think that the voices of the prophets tend to come alive in times such as these. And the prophets are very often artists, musicians, mystics, poets. And so what I want us to do is we'll, we'll take a, you know, a couple of seconds to just sort of you know, get ourselves really... It's a very American poem, Christmas Bells by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow the lyrics that we use for I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And it's interesting to me because a couple of these really powerful Christmas songs were written right in the middle of wars. This was written in 1963, right in the middle of the Civil War. And so Longfellow is talking about how those Christian virtues of peace on earth and goodwill to men and hope and love, like, he's like, yeah, that's basically been taught for years and years and years. And yet, oh my gosh, then the sound of the cannon and where are you, God? But then in the last verse, he comes in with his hope. And I thought, oh my gosh, the song is Advent. So listen for the last verse, which is Advent. Let's just take a minute here and dial down. Maybe if you want to, you can close your eyes, sort of relax. We'll let the voice of a Christian who's gone before us speak some words of truth into us. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. Wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along this unbroken song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Amen, Longfellow.